Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to Guy, Vice President of Product and Co-Founder of Bridge Crew. And we discuss how Guy's expertise in world history impacted him as a founder, the industry transition of moving to infrastructure as code, and strategies to master time management. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. I was hoping that you could start with just giving me a brief background of like how you got into technology and how you got to where you are today. So the story starts uh, about uh, 12 years back. I finished a actually technical position uh, within uh, within a seven-year period of armed service. And then I got out. I was looking for opportunities and I joined up uh, with a, a startup that had just raised a $2 million seed round back then. I started out just uh, you know looking looking around, checking out what they're doing. Really loved how you could just compile a group of people from different backgrounds and start building software and seeing if you know if there's an enterprise buyer for it. And ended up uh, spending about five and a half years there. So moved from a bunch of different roles, eventually landing on product management. And then that company CEO uh, eventually became my co-founder for for this company after. That startup got acquired. We stayed around for about a year and then founded Bridge Crew um, about uh, 14 months after that. So I've been doing product development, product management for about 10 years. And then those first two years, we were just getting to know the business. And then is this the first company you founded or was the one before? You, were you also a co-founder? Um, no, I wasn't a co-founder, but I was part of the, the founding team. I was employee number six or seven in what became uh, probably a 40, 50 people strong company uh, when they were acquired. So saw that entire journey of being a front row seat. So um, I, I feel like I, I was part of the founding team and really felt empowered to uh, to give this a go as a co-founder in, in this company. Yeah, well, being close to the founders, you got to see all the ups and downs and realize that, is this something I, I really want to do? You probably had a real accurate understanding of the difficulty. Yeah, and it's funny how with startups sometimes, even if you do just one single role as a product manager over the course of three years, it's actually three different roles. So you can... You do some inbound initially, then you move to some outbound. And then after we were acquired, it was mostly about managing a team. So, And then your background at school is in history, correct? It is in history. Uh, I did my, my bachelor's in history and economics. Yeah. And that was at Tel Aviv University? It was, yeah. And when you're learning history there, are you learning world history or Israeli history? It's a good question. We, you can choose. I like world history, uh, so you can kind of get a taste of everything. And it, it kind of worked, I think, really nicely with economics, where you can really tie things together. It's like understanding just you know chronology, but also how things ended up. I think that was very interesting to me. I did most of my, my works and papers were on, on trying to identify these interesting correlations between things that happen in history, but then they have economics as, as a way to explain their physics. Yeah, well, they're inexplicably tied and one shapes the other, right? Exactly, yeah. And so I'm curious to know that experience learning about economics and history, has that translated? Has that been useful to you as a founder? I've given that a lot of thought. I think what you can definitely learn from history is um, storytelling, which uh, now, now we can really articulate how important that is for, for entrepreneurship. Being able to compile a coherent narrative out of the separate pieces is just something you 
inevitably do when you when you study history and when you try to kind of build your own analysis of um, artifacts. Uh, so I think that's totally uh, correlated, and and yeah, and I think that's that's my, probably my biggest takeaway from from that period. So when you're pitching investors and going through all the process of you know working with new customers and you're telling the story is of of Bridge Crew and like why it exists, what's that story? It's a story of uh, of history. Um, I think where I like to start is actually with the previous company. We didn't say it's, the previous company was uh, Fort Scale. It was founded in 2013. It did uh, machine learning analytics, machine learning based analytics for cybersecurity. The reason I like to start with that is because it was a category that had uh, formed and was coined very quickly, but had uh, become part of mainstream security analytics pretty quickly. So apart from it showing us a process where the industry goes from not understanding a problem all the way to uh, understanding it and actually you know, getting customers to pay good money for it, it really helped us or helped me um, comprehend what it, uh, what it would take to build a differentiated product in a very crowded and fast-paced market which is cybersecurity. And Bridge Crew starts at 2019. Uh, uh, my two co-founders and I meet up. We, we get a group chat together. Uh, we have one co-founder, Dan, that was in San Francisco back then. Myself and Barack, our third co-founder, were here in Tel Aviv. And we started a process where we start to interview, not uh, podcast interviews, but professional interviews of uh, people from our personal network, people that we've worked with, people that we uh, had considered to be industry insiders. And started to understand uh, what their problems and what relates, which relates to cybersecurity and specifically cloud security. And we tried to identify the patterns and the recurring themes. And uh, once we nailed in or zoomed into a few themes that seem to be novel enough and that are not getting solved by the current uh, tool set, we started exploring the possibility to raise the venture capital and to start building something that might compete in, in, in that, as I said, crowded space. What was that problem that kept coming up over and over and, and you decided, let's narrow the focus, let's make our world small and really get this one thing right? What, what was that thing? That thing was cloud security. There was a disconnect between developers, the people that actually write applications, deploy them to the public cloud and essentially are in charge of the ongoing development and maintenance. And security teams that at that point, this is, remember, this is 2019, didn't necessarily have neither the tooling or even the visibility to the problems that may arise in a, in a cloud in a cloud based environment or an application that's hosted in the public cloud. We met security teams that were in charge of uh, you know in, in some of the biggest companies in the world, and we, just, we you know we found out they don't even have permissions and access keys to create a full inventory of what they have. So that's the origin problem, and, and then we understood there was a gap between developers and security that has to be mitigated somehow, and that kept coming up. You know, different shapes and sizes of organizations had described that problem in different ways, but it was very clear that these two important functions are not working in tandem in the way that they should, as with the full realization of how big of a problem cloud security is going to become. And I'm not actively like working in larger companies. So that's one of the areas where we run up to like my limitation of experience. But the difference between developers and let's say like cloud or security people, you said that there's a disconnect, right? Are those cloud security people, are those people that configure networks or are they software developers that can also configure? Like who, what type of person is that? So there, I, I would distinguish between two profiles, and, and let's just take uh, cloud-native companies as a subset first, because when you go to the, those very big enterprises that are in that digital transformation journey, it gets complicated. But for a cloud-native company, let's take a you know an Airbnb or a Netflix as an example. 
anyone is a, a, a an infrastructure developer. Anyone that's an application developer is an infrastructure developer. It's not like uh, you know when you develop on on a cloud provider on a, on a public cloud service. You don't have to ask someone to um, wire a new router or, or you know hook up a new database or spin up a, a new virtual machine for you. you. It's also a service. You do this alone. So even if you are a data scientist or even if you're a front-end developer, many times you own building and, and provisioning that infrastructure that uh, you're going to eventually develop uh, on top of. So I don't want to oversimplify this, but eventually for cloud-native companies, you'll, you'll definitely see that uh, infrastructure are eventually application developers. Um, and then a subset or a second group is uh, DevOps. And um, DevOps or platform engineers, infrastructure engineers, as companies grow in size and scale, they understand that there's undifferentiated work that doesn't need to happen on every developer's workstation. So they can have you know, three or four people that are in charge of creating reusable infrastructure that everyone that develops that on top of that application can kind of reuse and, and spin up with very little little effort. So th- those are the people that understand the problem, have full access, you know, are kind of entrenched with the ongoing issues of maintenance and security. And then I think the other end is the cor- what I'll call corporate security that's used to, you know, managing endpoint security and network security and didn't completely make the transition to understand that their digital footprint has moved into the public cloud. So that's essentially the, the profiles in which we saw that the disconnect between. And which one is the one you focus on the most or is the largest part of your customer base? I'd say groups one and two, but predominantly DevOps. Uh, they're the, you would say, the hands-on users of our software. They'll take our tools, deploy them, and, and actually uh, review results and use them to, to deploy guardrails and policies, etc. But there's second and third-hand users that are not necessarily working on our console, but are you know enjoying the benefit of us running in the background because we, you know, we kind of prevent some of the bad things from even getting into their production environment at all. And then for the people like these DevOps people, you know, you and I both open source people, right? So you will experience problem. First, we go see if there's open source, if there's like an availability, a possible solution over there. What's the problem that those DevOps people are like, ah, I'm going to go search for a solution. Yeah, and and you're spot on. And just before I answer that, it's not only that DevOps people will, will land on a problem and look for the solution in open source. If you look at a standard DevOps stack for, for the last five years, it's been mostly DevOps. These are the types of people that really are either people that build themselves and contribute back or are heavy users of some of this open source code because it's just, you know, it's just community maintained, it's up to pace, it's innovative novel everything. I would say the problem they ran into is creating consistent baselines for, uh, for infrastructure as code deployments. So we didn't talk about infrastructure as code, but infrastructure as code was a breakthrough moment for understanding what could potentially bridge between security and developers. I'll spend a minute on that, but infrastructure as code is essentially using a programming language to describe how infrastructure or cloud infrastructure should work once it's uh, deployed and developed. And the nice thing about infrastructure as code is that because it is a programming language, you can enforce practices directly into the language. It's very structured, so we can... Uh, introduce different development practices and guardrails that uh, ensure that people are using or developers are using you know security and compliance best practices when they build you know just in a freeform uh, programming language. So DevOps would have the problem of developers on their team using either prepackaged or self-sourced templates and modules from the public internet, 
but there's no consistent way to vet and validate that those uh, templates are actually up to standard with regards to how DevOps wants uh, infrastructure to eventually get provisioned and deployed. So you almost took like static code analysis and built it specifically for infrastructure as code? Spot on. Yeah. So if static code analysis one was one of many techniques. We need to do also composition analysis because some of the code is actually imported from the public internet. So it's a combination of static code analysis and composition analysis. Oh yeah, I simplified it a lot. No, no. <laughs> I'm just trying Spot to wrap on. my head yeah. around it. Because when you were talking about that, when the podcast started to take off, we've been doing this for like five years. And I'd say for the past four years, I haven't been writing software like on a daily basis. Before that, my entire life, basically since I was a kid, writing software daily, I just I found that I sort of satisfy that need getting to talk to great people like you. And what I remember was four or five years ago, just starting to play with the uh, infrastructure as code. It probably came out way before that, but at least it came on my radar then. I think I was using something called like Terraform. Is that a tool that does it? It's the most popular okay. most popular tool to do. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad the one I happened upon became the most popular one. So are you like a replacement for Terraform or you would be analyzing the Terraform configuration against a set of standards? So the latter. So Terraform is just one flavor. There's like, we, we currently support 13. Every cloud provider has now their own version of Terraform. You can use Terraform across all clouds, but there's actually domain-specific languages for any for every specific cloud, and there's subspecific uh, languages for different types of use cases. So if you want to kind of you know focus more on networking or do something that's more related to managing databases or compute uh, as as a control plane, you can use different types of of languages. But yeah, so Terraform def- definitely number one. So we'll we'll take Terraform wherever whenever it's built. We'll perform these checks essentially, a static analysis check, composition checks, a few others. And um, as you code, or when you push out a pull request, um, you'll get different automated responses from our bots. Something like, hey, you have not used a, a proper logging method in for, for this new data storage uh, resource. Uh, so you're spinning up a database, but you're not writing the logs anywhere, so you won't be able to troubleshoot. So that's one common configuration that we try to uh, help DevOps harden into uh, into developers' workflows. I want to take it up a level for business side of things as co-founders. So, I mean, it's great make developers' lives easier, help connect these DevOps and programming and, and help everything flow smoother within the company. But that's a little bit ambiguous. From a co-founder or founder standpoint, why am I expending capital on this? Why can I say, okay, I allocated capital to this because of that? Like, what's the benefit to the business? Let me tell you a story. My co-founder, he thinks that we're, um, as a product and engineering organizations, we're constantly in a state of migration. Whereas in, like, you know, 10 years back, you would do a, migra- a database migration every two years. Actually, our company introduces a new database every six months. Uh, new types of features, new types of business requirements now drive the need to be constantly in the move and, and utilizing both from an economics perspective, but also from an efficiency perspective, the best that cloud providers uh, have to offer to us as CTOs, as, uh, as, as uh, architects, etc. So assume that we are constantly in the, is the, in the business of migrating to get that full efficiency. Infrastructure as a code essentially unlocks that for you. So it makes infrastructure provisioning 
something that's much less cumbersome, much less manual, and much more automated. So you can lift and shift a hypothetical application from one database to another with 12, 13, 14 lines of code. Those lines will effectively define the new database, define a job that uh, copies the data to the new storage, and also make sure that everything that was routed to that last database now flows to the new one. So that's the type of business process that uh, application and infrastructure developers find themselves doing in the public cloud you know, every month, every quarter. So utilizing infrastructure as code just makes that you know, 100x uh, more simple than just doing it manually and just helps uh, evolve and, and build better applications and much, much faster. So are some of your customers actually in that transition of just starting infrastructure as code? I would say that, that everybody everybody's in, in a somewhat of a transition. You mentioned correctly that uh, four or five years ago, infrastructure as code, and specifically Terraform, has started to co- catch on as, as a de facto language to, to provision infrastructure. A lot of companies um, used other languages previously or used other custom tooling they built themselves. So it's not really about moving everything into infrastructure as code, but rather understanding that an application infrastructure is like uh, almost like archaeology. There's different layers. You know, there's the stuff you built four years ago that's much harder to migrate, but there's the stuff that you built six or seven months ago that might not need any maintenance at all and may already be written in infrastructure as code. Uh, our challenge as, uh, as technology leaders is to be able to adapt to both types of layers, even if they are or even if they're not managed through infrastructure as code and provide consistent security for, for both. So do you come up against, when they're, when they're coming to you, do you find yourself selling them the concept of infrastructure as code or have they already made it over that? They already have infrastructure as code and they're, and they're using you to help optimize it, make it more secure? Actually, I would say more of the former. But we'll, we'll see both. Uh, I think if you are in the business of transitioning your, your application stack into the public cloud, you're prob- you probably have either us or open source on, our, on your radar. We're having both those types of conversations. Our current customer base is much more lenient towards uh, people who have already made an unproportional investment into infrastructure as code and now want to make an unproportional investment in making sure that it's uh, sick, essentially secure. So you find yourself like almost in a consultative role in some of your sales, helping people understand the benefits of infrastructure as code. I would say so. It's not even it's not just the consultative part, but also somewhat of a uh, of an advisor, right? So sometimes uh, we come in. We we do have a, a very opinionated mindset when we look at uh, how people have implemented infrastructure as code. So we try to not only consult but really provide the the operationalization path towards getting into a world-class infrastructure as code practice. Yes, I like it. Now, do you have a sales team or is it just people finding you through your open source offering and then upgrading to paid? Yeah, so let's just tie off that story. So BridgeGrew, uh, the, the company was acquired twenty nine. Yeah, it was not, not yet acquired. It was founded in 2019. But only uh, two years later, it, it got picked up and uh, we, we had the privilege of joining the biggest cybersecurity company in the world, Palo Alto Network. So now we benefit from both developers coming from the broad internet who use our open source, but also Palo Alto has an amazing sales force that goes out and makes sure that that entire amazing portfolio has the opportunity to utilize our portfolio of tools and products. That's brilliant because you tap into their entire customer, all of their sales infrastructure, you can be an upsell on things. That's uh, So you're now inside of their ecosystem so that'll help you continue to grow but what's like the next thing for you guys what are you excited about what's getting you up out of bed in the morning 
That's a great, great, great question. I think our benefit was that we got acquired early, so we were able to fulfill a small dream by make, getting our early product, our almost our MVP out to market so fast, which is which has been a you know a brilliant experience, an amazing experience. After tapping in and capturing that market, we just understood how big the opportunity is. Uh, just seeing, you know, I think it's clear, but almost every company with a digital footprint in the world is a Palo Alto customer. So we had profound conversations with um, uh, CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and their kind of uh, long tail of problems that are not yet solved by Palo Alto. And the next hill uh, for us to climb, and we've been chiseling on this problem for the last year and a half, is essentially combining infrastructure and application uh, security into, into one cohesive set of tools and platforms for both developers and security. And the cloud really generates a great opportunity for that because if in the past application security was this, you know, this own almost legacy market with a few very big standalone vendors that have kind of done their thing. You talked about static analysis for, for the last 10, 15 years. The cloud really turns that upside on its head. It just introduces so many types of new dependencies into your code. I like to say that almost every company now is, uh, is almost an open core company. We use so much open source internally where it's hard now to differentiate between our, our custom code, our, our, our own pre-built um, manufactured code, and everything that we brought from the outside. Um, and those lines in the cloud get even more blurry because you use cl- code from your cloud provider that you can't even see. And you don't, you don't have full visibility into how they manage their practices. So a huge challenge for, for big enterprises to understand how that footprint affects their applications' postures. And we've been thinking of uh, new innovative ways to create a single point of view, both from developers and, and security, to be able to comprehend their infrastructure and application security risks in a way that in the way that they actually do combine. So we want people to go download and try the open source concept. Yes. And then it is the product that's going to merge application security with infrastructure as code. Is that product actually out and available for people to play with right now or no? It, it will be once we uh, publish this. Okay, perfect. How do people access both of those things? How would I go about playing with either of these tools? Or is it just one tool that has two features now? Explain that to me. Okay, so everything connects to our open source. It's called uh, Chekhov, C-H-E-C-K-O-V. Uh, check it out on GitHub. It's our one-stop shop project for everything that has to do with uh, cloud code security scanning. It has about uh, 200 worldwide maintainers. It's been downloaded like 10 million times from PyPy, and it's it's a, it's great. People who want to secure their Terraform, that's probably their first go-to go to tour. We've essentially mounted everything that we built for application security on into Chekhov. To unlock that, you will need an API key. Um, you can uh, get that from either a Prisma Cloud deployment for, from Palo Alto or from our own Bridge Crew. Uh, SaaS, which is uh, which is publicly available and even has a community free community tier, and that unlocks everything. It lo- unlocks um, infrastructures, code security, image scanning, secret scanning, software composition analysis, a bunch of good stuff that uh, help you secure your cloud native application. And then your website is what? It's at bridgecrew.io. Do you have a careers page on there? We do. Yeah, we'd love to have you, Joel. Come on. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. So that's you guys right. have a careers page. You're currently hiring, I, I assume, correct? We are. That's correct. All right. And have you have you done any partnerships with like the Terraform? So when people are exploring that, they see that your offering is a way to help secure it? 
We have. Um, so we've had three big partnerships within the ecosystem. One big one with, was with uh, HashiCorp, which is the commercial company behind Terraform. And we've had a long lasting relationship where, you know, we're both helping people who contribute to open source Terraform build out better and uh, more secure modules. This started back in, uh, in 2019, 2020. We just redirected people to use Chekhov. We helped them identify different places where uh, their modules were not using the best security and compliance best practices, which was great. We've built out a great commercial relationships where both the Bridge Crew and the Palo Alto tools have just you know great bi-directional integrations into into Terraform Cloud and the HashiCorp stack. And if you're using both products and you connect them together, you just get the best both of, best of both worlds. We're, we also build out great uh, relationships with uh, source control management providers, so GitHub, GitLab, and Bitbucket. We've built out these deep in integrations where uh, we just use utilize their native APIs to inject a bunch of this automated reasoning directly into the developer's console. So if you write a pull request in a in a repository that uh, is connected to uh, to us on the back end, you just get all of this great context when uh, as you type as you write, just makes your your pull request ten times more secure than they were. Dude, it's becoming so crazy advanced. When I saw that new oh, GitHub sorry. typing, <laughs> like the the predictive coding yes. or what I forget the name of it, but man, when I saw that, I was like, "Wow, have we come far really fast?" You know, we have, and actually, for infrastructure as code, you you get the same benefit. It's there's so much you can do. I have this hypothesis that developers just need to get the input, the right input at the right time. Because you know, development should be very intuitive. You're writing something. You have a, an objective. You want to make something work. You don't want to, you know, search up API documentation. You don't want to start reading these long articles on Google of understanding how to do things. And I think a good developer tool is one that understands you're now tackling a problem and helps you resolve it as fast as you can. Um, so we've really implemented that philosophy into our over 30 ecosystem plugins, um, trying to do exactly that. That is super, super amazing. So people can go to Checkoff is the GitHub project or bridgecrew.io. And that's where we want to direct people. Please, yeah. Awesome. Let us know what you think. I want to talk about time management. So this morning I read an article and it was about the chief marketing officer that used to be Bill Gates' speechwriter. And now he's the chief marketing officer of Microsoft. And he said when he, he traveled the world with, with Bill for, for two years and wrote all his speeches as he did all of these things. And this was in, I think, 97 to 99. So it was like during one of the big explosive parts of, of Microsoft. And he had said that, you know, Bill struggled with time management like everybody did. And he came up with a system where he would divide his day into 25%, four buckets, and then allocate a theme to each bucket. And they describe it in the article. And I thought that was cool. I, I, I see a lot of different time management techniques and a lot of different management techniques in general. And what I've discovered personally from, from all of these interviews is the successful people, they have something. <laughs> it's not necessarily they all, they all have the same thing. It's they all have something, some way, some discipline of looking at how they they run their calendars or they run their lives. And so I'm always interested to find out like how people approach that. Um, so that's a long-winded way to ask, like, how do you approach like managing your time? It's a great, great question. I actually have just talked about this with uh, with my team uh, a few days back. It's one of the things that uh, I'm I'm very much occupied as I you know move between different roles as the company changes in size and scale. Is I ask myself how how should I be utilizing my time? And 
maybe because of you know we do a mandatory military service here in Israel, I've, I've adopted some of the practices of and some of the discipline of a of a military schedule. And I think the, the if you look at my calendar, the main theme you'll you'll probably find is that I believe in recurring meetings with uh, dedicated topics that uh, really reflect my values and uh, my priorities. So I try to uh, insert different types of cadences, not just for my one-on-ones, but for my actual hands-on projects, the things that I want to manage personally. And I allocate a frequency based on how I perceive that project to require my attention. So everything from you know a strategic roadmap all the way to tactical uh, launches, uh, feature launches, I'll try to translate that into a set of recurring meetings with different types of people that help me sample reality in a way that uh, that can help me capture, exactly, to capture the points in which I can make a, make a, a decision or make an impact that, uh, that, that contributes to the team and doesn't impact their velocity. Well said. Sample reality so we have the information to change it. My new tagline. This is great, man. This has been a complete blast. I want to make sure that we cover everything that you could possibly want to get out there to the world. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that's on your mind? Maybe our launch with regards to uh, software composition analysis. Yeah. Is there an event? Is there a big ordeal? Is it just an email newsletter going out? What's the launch actually look like? Yeah, we'll do it all. It's a big Palo Alto themed launch. So there's like 150 different action items going everywhere. It is going to be a quite, quite a big launch. It's uh, it's our you could say our debut into into proper application security after really mastering the infrastructure side of cloud security. But I wanted to throw two stats at you that I thought were pretty staggering. We've been scavenging the internet trying to understand are people using secure templates and best practices, and we found some staggering results. We found that um, out of all of the infrastructure's code te- ter- templates you can find for Terraform. Almost 50% contain at least one misconfigured um, item. That means that if you download that module and you do nothing to it apart from deploying into your public cloud, you're essentially at a one or two risk of deploying a, a new misconfiguration. And those could be have dire results and anything from opening it to the public internet or or just uh, using uh, sloppy credentials that can, can be picked up by someone um, who performs uh, the counterintelligence and identifies those weaknesses. Same goes for images. We use uh, we all use uh, images on Docker Hub. We we analyze Docker Hub and we found over ninety percent of the latest images that are used by a bunch of different very popular distributions for for some of the biggest projects that people use for data processing and compute. Uh, about ninety percent have at least one medium or high uh, severity vulnerability in them, and that just gives you gives you the sense of how profound. The problem is with the current set state of um, of the code we're importing into our applications. It's just the best practices are just not implemented, and the baselines are just not good enough. And and I think one thing that um, we're trying to do with Chekhov, and the reason we're keeping it open source and trying to contribute as much of the content to make sure that as many developers use it as possible, is because we've had such a good experience doing the Terraform community of service of you know just mitigating potentially hazardous configurations uh, from the from the public domain and making sure that people use just secure defaults. And we're just hoping to we can expedite that with open source packages and popular distributions of images that are used uh, throughout. So we don't just download random things off the internet and put them into our projects. That's a that's a, a no go. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Well guy, this has been absolutely fantastic. Man, we made a podcast. How do you feel? I feel great. There's some good stories there and it'll be a fun listen. 
Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.